KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. She's the city's top cop, and her rise to the top was no easy feat. As we close out Women's History Month, we feature a woman in the male-dominated field of law enforcement. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw shares her experiences and how the department is dealing with violent crime. These solutions have to be community-driven, and it's going to take more than the police department to fix a lot of the things that we're seeing. Our newsmaker this week is an 8th District City Councilwoman known for her hands-on style in the community. Her goal is to make community spaces and neighborhoods safer, and she's getting lots of support for her efforts. Antoinette Lee has our Philly rising changemaker who's been making an impact in the community. It's a half hour of girl power on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw is at the helm of the nation's fourth largest police department in the nation's most impoverished major city. Her journey, as you can imagine, was no easy feat. And as it stands today, Outlaw is in the eye of the storm of fighting violent crime. Bolstered our narcotics bureau. We have more boots on the ground. We created a Kensington police district with 38 additional officers out there with the entire command structure. The biggest issue plaguing the city? Gun violence. It could be extremely frustrating because we don't know if it's just more guns available or uh, more people are carrying guns or whatever it is. But the numbers of guns that we continue to get off the street are increasing month over month over month. Last year, there were 562 homicides, 486 were fatal shootings, and the shooters are getting younger and younger. Fighting crime is a given, but holding officers accountable wherever it's warranted is also part of her job. This incident does not reflect who we are as the Philadelphia Police Department. It is not aligned with our values of honor, honor, integrity, and service. And while I don't speak for the FOP, we're all still cops. Welcome, Commissioner Outlaw, to Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us. Now, let's learn a little bit about your background. What exactly sparked your interest in law enforcement? And is this something that runs in your family? Absolutely not. It does not run in my family. And I learned very quickly that here in Philadelphia, there's a lot of legacies. So there's aunts, uncles, husbands, wives, cousins, grandparents. People grow up aspiring to become police officers because they see it. In their family, there's representation. Me, completely opposite. Um, I didn't grow up respecting, um, I won't say respecting. I, I, I was taught to respect authority, mm-hmm. but I didn't revere the police in the sense that when I saw the police drive by in my neighborhoods, we felt afraid, quite frankly. And as young children, even though we weren't doing anything, when the police came through, we ran because we were kind of conditioned to believe that's what we were supposed to do. Um, but you know, my, my grandmother, my mom always raised us to respect authority. So I didn't do anything that was too ridiculous. But mm-hmm. I'm just saying all of that to say I didn't grow up saying waving when they drove by saying, hi, Officer Smith or whomever it was. My encounters or my recollection of the police was when I was young, the police came into our family and took loved ones away or a loved one away. And as a young person, you don't put two and two together or think logically and say, oh, well, this happened because there had to be a consequence. It was you took my loved one away from me. And all I know is this person. So whatever you're arresting them for couldn't possibly be 
you know, the person that I know. Right. And it wasn't until I had the opportunity in high school to ride with a police officer for two weeks. I saw the human being behind the badge, learned that police officers were people just like us, mm-hmm. learned that uh, especially, you know, it's just like I'm not from Philadelphia, obviously. I'm from Oakland, California. Right. There's a lot of pride in being from the town, as we call it. And so same thing there as a young person to learn that there's other people that have the same interest and can tell me history about the city as we drove around and likes a lot of the same restaurants that I liked and, you know, could could rattle off the musicians and, you know, all of that stuff. There was a bond that was created there because I'm now seeing the human being again. His name was Tim, Tim Sanchez. I'm seeing the human being. And again, not this this law enforcement officer that represented so much uh, negativity for me as a young person. Mm -hmm. And when that two weeks was up, it came time to uh, part ways. And they said, Hey, we have this program called the explorers. We meet once a week. Would you be interested? I was like, yeah, whatever. But I started going to these meetings on Wednesday evenings after school. And I saw that it was okay to actually like the cops, to want to learn more about policing and my peer group is now shifting and my interests began to shift. And so when I um, became one of the first in my generation to go to college, they said, hey, wait, before you go, there's this program called the Police Cadet Program. And we pay you. I thought I was going to be rich, $10 an hour. And it was part time. You can only work so many hours. Um, but what I didn't realize is that I was a part of their pipeline hmm. to recruit young people from Oakland um, and basically hold their hand to become police officers or dispatchers or to work in a crime lab or whatever it was. And so that's how I entered into law enforcement. It was kind of a roundabout way. I thought I was going to be a social psychologist. I think it kind of still is the job that I'm doing now. But this was another way for me to still end up in the social justice realm, but do it in a different way. And that's how I'm here. Now, your family, friends, how did they take the news that you were going to go into law enforcement? I mean, they must have been, you know, surprised given your experience as a young child with police to have yeah. evolved. There, there was surprise there, obviously. You know, and, and we grow up, some of my childhood friends, they went a different route. But there's a mutual respect because they all understand that we all have to do what we have to do uh, to not only sustain and take care of ourselves and our families, but even though there are people on the other side of the law, they still respect what law enforcement does. Mm-hmm. But in their minds, they're doing what they have to do. And I don't want to say it's like part of a cat and mouse game, but there's still a mutual respect there. Um, I will tell you, my dad, I was so embarrassed. He stood up. It was like the first day of the academy or it was family night or something like that. And he stood up and said, I think this job is beneath my daughter. She shouldn't be doing it. And if I could blush and turn red, I think my face would have been as red as that blouse that you're wearing right there, mm-hmm. if I could. But I knew that was coming from a place of, concern and from fear and ironically when I got cut loose and I was off probation and I was a solo officer I was assigned to deep east Oakland which is where I grew up and at the time I'm gonna age myself he paged me I had a pager Mm -hmm. or beeper right (laughs) and I'm thinking what's wrong is it an emergency I call him back I find a payphone. I call him back and he says uh this car has been parked in front of my house for like two weeks, I need you to come tow it. I'm like, wait a minute. So you think I'm your own personal officer? <laughs> Six and a half months ago or almost a year ago, I would say, you stood up and told everybody I shouldn't be doing this job. Now you can see the pride right. in that, you know, my daughter's a police officer. She's working this neighborhood. And all it was, he wanted me to come in uniform and talk to his neighbors and do all that stuff. But 
It was it was a 180, I would say. But I mean, as with any parent, I think, you know, there was some concern just about being safe. And, you know, I, I swear I was like two feet shorter and 20 pounds lighter. So, I, you know, I wasn't the biggest out there. But I think, you know, they very quickly learned that I could handle myself. So the support, I will tell you, is extremely, extremely critical, not mm-hmm. just to do this role for any of us, but for me to ascend upwards through the ranks in the way that I have, I, I know I wouldn't have been able to do it without the support of my family and my loved ones. Well, of course, this is a male-dominated profession. Um, and of course, we uh, salute all the women who are serving and protecting right now uh, alongside their male counterparts. Thank you. What would you say are the unique challenges, though, that women face as officers? Obviously, they don't have the same challenges that men do. They have to be some differences there. Well, I mean, if you just kind of take the obvious, right, there's a there's when you close your eyes, what do you think of a police officer looking like? And, and I don't mean just, you know, features, but are they tall? Are they stocky? Are they muscular? Are they athletic? All these things. And some of the best police officers are the police officers that have the strongest interpersonal skills, mm-hmm. have the ability to self-regulate, can, you know, de-escalate situations all of these skills that, you know, I, I would say maybe not all women have it, but most of us, we do. That's who we are because we're right. fixers, we're problem yes. solvers, we're nurturers, we're caregivers. Mm-hmm. And we bring different lived experiences and perspectives in how we would approach a situation. Because we're dealing with biases, whether implicit or explicit, and what people think a police officer should look like or how a police officer should speak or carry themselves uh, when entering. I just remember as a younger officer when entering a home. You know, it's like, oh, okay. I called nine one one for help, and who was this young? You know, I always look younger than what I was. Who? What's this little girl going to do, <laughs> right? <laughs> or you know, I came up when there were an era of women who would tell us that they wouldn't get cover from their male counterparts because their male counterparts didn't think that they should even be police officers wow. in the first place. So they learned how to band together, uh, and again, not only utilize their strengths and their skills to get things done but to also make it very clear that we can handle things in the same way. So I would just say the typical biases that already exist, um, whether it's and and then now when you fast forward to the 21st century or 2022, we're dealing with biases and discrimination in a different way. It's it's scrutiny. It's still there, but we're scrutinized even more. So it's not just developing a thicker skin, but having to learn earlier on in our careers that we have to know what bias looks like and be prepared and confident enough in our own skin to address it. And I, and the last thing I would say with this is, you know, this is a 24-7, 365 job. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so for a lot of us, either we sacrifice, if we choose to, we sacrifice on the front end of our career or on the back end. And that means we're having kids early on and people going to talk mess about you because you're off the street early on in your career to child rear and then go back out there or you wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, yes. and you have your children, uh, If again, if you choose to do that, later. Right. And so it's a sacrifice maybe that you're already in a high position, and now you're bringing family into the equation for a job that never stops. Right. So these are things, you know, sacrifices that we've had to make that our male counterparts not necessarily have had to do, but these are things that we have to take into consideration when, when we enter this field. You know, women, we tend to be people pleasers. We want everyone to be happy with what we're doing. You being the top cop in Philadelphia means you cannot please everyone, no matter what decisions you make. And you face a lot of criticism. How do you deal with that? 
I learned a, a long time ago to focus my energy on the things that I can fix. Mm-hmm. You know, it's important for me to ensure that people are given voice. I recognize that I had to be willing to take feedback and criticism uh, gracefully and also acknowledge that people would be venting not necessarily towards me or at me personally, but what I represent okay, and what people think I could do. But I also learned that I don't have the time of day for anyone who's standing and pointing fingers, yelling, criticizing, but they're not backing that up with a solution or a suggestion or a willingness, even if they don't have something at that time, a willingness to be open to hearing other perspectives. So I very quickly learned, because it was drawing too much out of me, Mm -hmm. I very quickly learned to focus my energy on those who were willing to come to the table and problem solve, as Mm -hmm. opposed to those folks who just wanted to yell, scream, be loud, wrong, and make a scene and then go on. Because it's real easy to do that, isn't it? It's so easy to sit behind a computer or if you're not dealing with life uh, changing decisions or, you know, sometimes life or death decisions on a daily basis and you don't actually have to do it. It's so easy to point your finger and say, oh, I'd have done this or she should have done that. Or, OK, cool, cool. Come try this for about five minutes. Let me know how that works out. For exactly. You. Exactly. Let's switch now and talk a little bit about what we all dealing with here. And that's um, violent crime. Mm-hmm. We all know, of course, you know, I've spoken to police officers over the over the years. They just want to get home to their families at the end of the day, just like all of us. Yeah. But what are some of the things that keep you up at night, Commissioner Outlaw, as an officer, knowing what's happening out here? I will tell you, I've learned to narrow down the list of things that keep me up at mm. night because it's really important for me to get rest so I can have the energy and a right mind so I can focus and be ready for whatever the next obstacle is that's coming the next day because it's always something, always, always something. So for me, things that keep me up at night, aside from the literal phone ringing and I have to get up and respond, whether it's one o'clock in the morning, three in the morning or whatever it is, or I just put my head down and then it's time to get right back up. But obviously violence and, and the lives lost, that has an impact on me. But I also know that violent crime has been increasing steadily since 2015. And I'm not as one human being, and I said this the day I was announced, I'm not going to do this by myself. And for those folks who think that I'm going to come in here and do it by myself, have another thing coming, because not only is it, it's not fair, but it's an unrealistic expectation to know what's been going on for years. And then I come in and I'm expected to not only clean all of these things up, but do it with far less resources than my predecessors were given. And knowing that I'm working in a completely different landscape. What keeps me up at night is when my, I see people that look like my children, either mm-hmm. in handcuffs in the back of a car or as victims in the street. Or when I'm speaking with families in hospitals that just lost their loved one. And they're looking to me saying, please do something about this. I know it's not only you being the answer, but I need you to do something. I'm hurting and I'm grieving. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you feel so helpless. You feel so helpless at those times. And so it, it, it reinvigorates me to, to want to do more. But these are the things that keep my mind going. And then also, of course, I don't ever stop mothering. So just because my sons are 23 and almost 21, um, we're in different parts of the country. I'm constantly worrying about them and their well-being, whether or not all the same things that parents worry about here. Are they, 
wearing such and such tennis shoes while they're out wherever it is. Don't wear that. Don't be flashy. Put your, you know, don't wear a hood. You know, all, all the same things. You're driving. Where are you driving? This this is an unfamiliar state. I worry about that constantly. And so I'm still in constant contact with them, even though we're, this is the first time we've ever been aside from when they were in school. But as young adults for them, we're in three different states. And so we come together, you know, around holidays and stuff when, when we can travel. But, um, you know, there's, there's still the human side of me right. when I need to schedule a dentist appointment or a doctor's appointment and, and all of those things. So when I say things keep me up, it's I'm thinking about the livelihood of my own personal space, right, whether it's self-care or my loved ones and my family and how I can still be present for them even though I'm not physically there, and then because I have such a connection, I feel whether people have met me person or not, I still have such a, commun- uh, a communal connection that I feel like I, I want to do as much as I can because these I look at, you know, every other week we show people that we've arrested or people that we want. And we put it up on a screen and it will tell you, you know, we're like, gosh, that that looks like my child really? or my cousin or my nephew. Or we'll look at and shake our head and say, God, they're so young. Or whatever it is, mm-hmm. those things keep me up at night. The gun violence issue. I'm out in the communities talking with people, uh, you know, on a daily and weekly basis, and you know, everyone has the same concerns. Where we're hearing the reports every single day, another one was shot dead, another one was was fatally uh, shot. What are some of the solutions that uh, the department is working on to quell the gun violence in Philadelphia? So I will tell you, when it comes to what law enforcement can do. Law enforcement typically is short term and immediate. That means cops on dots, cops in problematic areas, increased visibility. So we can not only be there to prevent and deter, but to be there right away to make an arrest. And then that has to be followed up with timely prosecution, whether it's at the state level or at the federal level. Right. So we've been redeploying because we're short staff. We don't have the resources. Um, You know, we talk about when I got here, the authorized strength was sixty five hundred sworn cops. Uh, shortly after that, because the pandemic hit, uh, we lost 195 bodies. But even on top of that, we have about a thousand people that are out. So we don't have the numbers that people think we had. But even, you know, years ago, I would say 10 years ago, we're about 10 percent less Mm -hmm. than what we had. So we're being asked to do more with far less. So I've redistributed officers that were assigned to plain clothes, put them back in uniform and cars so we, we can do what we can in the short term. I put together a non-fatal shooting group, a team of investigators or detectives, uh, so to speak, to make sure that we were centralizing our resources around and prioritizing our resources around non-fatal shootings so we can improve our clearance rates. And then also hope to deter some of the homicides that we're seeing. And then also leaning more on forensics so we can uh, utilize forensics more so to prevent and solve crimes as opposed to just preparing for court. So so those are some of the things that I think resonate with folks, because when we're talking about law enforcement, again, it's right now, what are you doing today? The longer term solutions are us partnering with those responsible for the boots on the ground as far as credible messengers with incorporation of services, workforce development, getting people jobs, lighting, cleaning up streets, right, trees, all of those things. Those are very, very important, but it's longer term and we might not see the results right away. I also want to point out something that you said, though. You mentioned that when we turn on the news, I don't let me tell you something. I don't even watch. Not a knock. I love y'all. 
Not a knock to <laughs> any of our local media right, right. or media in general, but I don't watch it anymore. Well, I don't watch it because it has an impact on on my mental well-being. Of course, I know what's going on. I know what the headlines are. My team, we all debrief. We know what the climate is. It's not that I don't know what's going on and what's being said and what's being reported. But if I watch that on a regular basis, I would never even begin to know what's going on that's positive in the world because it's not covered as much, right? We do a lot of amazing things in our department, but we see the bad all the time. And in speaking to a group of young people earlier this week, they mentioned the same thing. And I had to share with them. I said, look, not all cops are bad. There's a very small percentage that are out here doing some not so good things. And it's important in my job to catch that. And when I do something is done about it right away. Right. But the vast majority of your police officers are not only here to serve, but they love people. They love what they do. And that's evident because we've been through heck and back over these last two years Mm -hmm. and they're still showing up for work. So I think it's important for us to recognize as a community that there's far more good than what's going on here. This is my third state that I've worked in. And I will tell you the coverage isn't the same with the ongoings. Right. And we're not the only city in the country that's experiencing what we're experiencing. But we're seeing it magnified and almost glorified. And I'm not saying by media, uh, but just in in what's on social media uh, and our young people who are so influenced by this. You know, we could talk about carjackings, right? The the carjackers are getting younger and younger. It's glorified in what we're seeing, again, on social media, the gun carrying. I am not about um, censure, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also glorified in the music that we listen to. And and it's just everywhere. And we have to arm our young people and some of these adults, quite frankly, in helping them discern from what's reality and what's entertainment. So, again, I'm not saying do away with the entertainment, right? but it's there. So that means it's not just what's the police department's doing. It's what the community can do and how the community can also step up and take back their blocks and say, look, you're not going to drop that litter in front of my house. Pick it up, put it in the garbage. Because our young people will even tell you we're looking for leadership in our elders, in our seniors, mm-hmm. in our guardians. And I know that if you tell me what I'm doing is wrong— it's because you care. We love you and we value you. We need more of that as opposed to when we get home, I'm closing my car door, going straight into the house, and I don't know what's going on in my neighborhood. So it has to be a comprehensive approach. Commissioner Outlaw, the big concern and people in the community and for everyone that I speak with is that the shooters are getting younger yes. and younger. That is a huge concern. And the question that often comes up, and I'll ask you, I know you've been asked this question, where are the kids getting these guns, 12, 13, with guns? Where are they getting them? Very easy to get here. Um, I, they're, for the most part, the, the guns themselves are coming from the area or within the state. Um, there are some, you know, outward states, one-offs that, that we know of where the guns, guns are coming from. But guns are fairly easy to get. Mm. Straw purchasing is a huge issue. And uh, for those folks who don't know what that is, that means someone like you and I, we go, we purchase the gun legally, and then we sell them to the folks who aren't supposed to have them. And because they're so easy to get and they can get them really cheap, guns are, are just falling into the hands of people that shouldn't have them, including our young people. I can't tell you. I remember hugging an eight-year-old girl in a hospital emergency room. Her little brother had just shot himself in the head accidentally they had been playing a video game and the gun was there and it was out left out negligently 
Um, but I, this girl, little girl, this baby, they're all babies to me. She cried so hard. And I thought by the time I let her go, my shirt would be drenched. It wasn't. She was still in shock and she was so cried out. And, and we all been there. You know, when you ever cry so hard, no more tears are there. Right, right. That's what it was for her. And there's no reason that an eight year old should be at that point of I'm out of fill in the blanks. Right? Right, right. Because she's cried so much before. There's so much trauma. It's generational. And that's why I'm saying this is going to take an ecosystem of solutions. Everyone has to step up and do their part. And then you hear our young people say, I have to carry this for protection right. or it makes me look, I say cool. I don't know if they're saying cool nowadays, whatever it is, right? It, it garners, ex, you know, acceptance by their peers. And, and, and then, you know, the young girls or the young the dudes, you know, because they think they're attracted to that, the bad girl or the bad dude or whatever it is, it just further perpetuates what we're seeing. And so there's so many people out there working with our young people to make better choices. I, I think we have to shift away from where are the parents, because do you really want to know the answer? Some of these young people will say, why are you asking me that? There's an assumption that there are parents in the house or if they are there and there's a home that parents have the, per, you know, the, the skills. Right. We have to stop assuming that all of the societal norms or what used to be norms are actually norms because they're not anymore. Mm-hmm. And so when you're dealing with illiteracy and, you know, just all of these things. We really have to go back to ground zero and really address the root causes of the issue. And that's why I keep saying, I'll say it over and over again, these solutions have to be community driven. And it's going to take more than the police department to fix a lot of the things that we're seeing. We are fighting a moral fight right now. You mentioned the parents. You said that we don't really want to know where they are. I kind of do. I I mean, I'm almost like, you know, at what point? Do you hold these parents who are maybe absent, you know, accountable for the action of their kids? But that's what I'm saying. And I'm like, do you really want to know? Because Mm -hmm. when you get the answer, it's not going to be the answer that you're looking for. It's not, oh, they're left unattended because the parents are going. It's it's not that. The reality is, is that there are some children that are raising themselves. Okay. They don't have parents in Mm -hmm. the traditional way that we're thinking of, whether it's a strong mom or a dad or whatever it is. Everyone doesn't have that. It might be an older sibling or, you know, a grandparent that just, you know, they're doing what they can with what they have. They've already raised their children and now they're doing what they can with what they have. So that's what I mean by you don't really want to know because it's it, it's you're not going to find the answer in the traditional sense. I think that you and I may think of it just seems like the kids have no fear that they're fearless Ooh. with the brazen um, shootings that they're doing sometimes in broad daylight. Think I mean, about they're it. young and they don't. Yeah. If, and and this is what was really striking to me when I began to interact with our young people more and more. If you don't believe there's anything to have hope for, if you don't believe you have a reason to live, if all of in your short life, no one's ever told you, I love you, I value you, you are important, I care about you, and I'm I'm being tough on you because I value you. If you've never had that, And you're not thinking, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be you're thinking about what am I going to do to eat today? And am I going to live to see tomorrow? Because I've seen them. They're all with their head on a swivel. My work car has tinted windows and I see when I drive past them, they're all they get raised up because they don't know who's coming. 
if it's somebody coming for them mm. and they have to get ready. And so I, I see this and I crack the window to make it clear, like, no, it's me. Um, but they're, they're in a constant state of hypersensitivity. So imagine that, right? If I don't think I have anything to live for, do you think that there is a, an actual thought process behind if I do this, then the consequence is X or Y, right? Carjackings. You did bring that up. And I did want to mention that as the you know final thing that we talk about with regards to violent crime. They are getting more violent. Um, they are happening everywhere. It's not just in the so-called bad areas. It's broad daylight. It's in common areas. Is the department making a dent? We're seeing an uptick in these um, uh, carjackings. What is the department doing to to make a dent in that? We are making a dent, actually. The yeah. numbers are slowly trickling down. Now, we started off the beginning of the year. The numbers were tripled over the last two years. Um, um, in the beginning of the year, we put together a regional task force, not just a task force, but a regional task force, because we recognize uh, that there was a lot of impact on our neighboring townships uh, mm-hmm. and counties. Either the car would be stolen here and taken somewhere else or vice versa. So we saw immediately that it was important not only to stay in communication with our neighboring law enforcement agencies, but to work together and then to also bring in the feds in a different way with their with their folks and their tools and their technology. I won't say what that is. Um, and that's how we've been able to make some very, very strong key arrests in this area. But we're still chipping away at it. And again, I hate to say this and, um, you know, I don't want to sound dismissive, but it isn't just happening here in Philadelphia. Right. So whatever it is that has, again, I keep saying glorified this this new, oh, I'm going to go jack somebody. It's happening in major cities all over the country. And we're all doing what we can to, to slowly chip away. But fortunately, we're starting to see a somewhat downward trend. Well, it is Women's History Month, which is, is one of the reasons why you are here, Commissioner Outlaw. Uh, you did mention the fact that you're a parent and that your your sons are, are older mm-hmm. and the relationship has changed. But as a mother, work-life balance is, is pretty important and it can be challenging. I know I find it challenging. Um, how was it for you and how has it changed since they're since they've been older? How do you balance this big job that you have being a commissioner of the fourth largest city and dealing with the kids that you were talking about? You're still parenting, of course. Yeah, it never really always ends. be babies. Always be <laughs> yeah. babies. Um, I think the type of worries just changes. It just evolves to from baby stuff to big boy stuff to young adult stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's kept me grounded in this area is that I've always very unapologetically been a mother first. Right. Um, And when my mother was still alive, it was a mother and daughter first. And I say that because uh, my mother had some health issues and she passed away in her early 60s. And whenever there was a time where she was hospitalized, I'm her only child. And I was her uh, caregiver for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And if anything happened with her, People knew and I didn't have any qualms about it. I didn't I didn't feel guilty or whatever it was. Either I'm working from the hospital or I'm out. Right. And I think because I've ad- adhered to that my entire career and I've you know, I've taken mess for it from, you know, from day one. If it's my family or it's my children, they come first. And so um, I think, you know, my children understand that. And I've I'm like, you know, what, they'll be OK. Kids are resilient. They know they're loved. Mm-hmm. And there were times, you know, miss holidays, miss birthdays. We just got to do the birthday on a different day or a holiday on a different day. Or I remember as a patrol sergeant, 
sliding through to their football games if I could, but not being able to stay. And fortunately, thank goodness, you know, the kids always like, did you see my touchdown or did you see my play? And I'd be like, yeah, baby, I saw it. And I'm looking around like, oh, God, I hope it was within those, you know, that time period when I was there. But I understand because I have prioritized in that way. They now fully understand that I'm not going to be able to be there for everything. Um, But they can always call on me. Um, You know, I'm a phone call away, a text or a video call or whatever it is. They know that they're still the priorities in my life. So I'm fortunate in that sense um, that we still have a great relationship because a lot of people come out of these, you know, careers, especially running these organizations where they have very strained relationships with their loved ones. You never truly get a full balance, so to speak, you know, that work-life balance. But I think, um, you know, establishing those boundaries early on were really, really helpful for me. And and I'm just glad it's been able to work. As a black woman— in um, a male-dominated field, have you ever had the feeling or experience that people aren't taking you seriously or weren't taking you All seriously, and perhaps just uh, you know refer to your male counterpart instead? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Still happening. A, and I would tell you, before there was diversity, equity, inclusion, right? Before mm-hmm. there was a name, before mm-hmm. there was training, I knew there was a, a there there, but I just didn't know what to call it. Right. Right. And I I can't remember. Oh, gosh, I was so excited when I learned the term microaggressions. I was like, that's what that is. (laughs) Right. Yes. Right. So there's there's terms that are coined to describe what I've been experiencing for so long. But the good news is that now that I'm aware of what it is when I see it and I'm comfortable enough in my skin to know what it is, I'm going to call you on it. Right. So the answer is absolutely yes to that. As a black woman, have you experienced that's the first thing people see. Yes, I'm a black woman. I've been a black female my whole life, y'all. I just happen to be a cop. So when I'm asked, well, how does this impact your... um, Do you ask a white male? Well, as a white male, how do they were born this way. So that tends to be the first thing people focus on. And when they lead with that, it tends to dismiss all of our qualifications or how I busted my ass, quite frankly, to get to this position. It overlooks my education. It overlooks my professional and personal experiences or just who I am as a human being. I would say for like the first year, the types of questions that I was asked, it was almost the way, the way they were framed. It was like it, it, it caused me to be on the defense all the time. And it wasn't until the end of 2020, I would think, with the exception of two interviews early on, people wanted to know about me. And they're like, oh, we want to hear more of that. I'm like, well, you should ask. I'm more than happy to share. Ask the right questions, mm-hmm. right? But my colleagues... When they were starting in a pandemic and the numbers went up and had all these things against them, they would be asked questions like, oh, my gosh, we are in a pandemic. You're short staffed. You have officers out. Oh, my gosh, civil unrest, all these things. What can we do to help you? Me, I would be asked, this is going on. This is going on. This is going on. And all these things are going on. Why do you think you deserve to be? Do you still think you're qualified to be? And it jumped off the page. And it wasn't until I actually called somebody on it that the questions stopped Mm. in that way. And I know it's because and then obviously I know I'm not from here. Folks, y'all, you know, I know y'all got to give me a minute before you say, "Okay, we accept her, which is cool. This is cool. Um, But aside from that, there was this. You're not tough enough. Right. You don't have the look. You don't speak as if or all these things that people expect um, because when they close their their eyes, all of the the biases and the images of what they think a police commissioner should be or look like 
right. or should sound like because I didn't fit that glass or fit that mold. Um, I think that's part of why I was being asked the questions in the way that I did. But, you know. But people tend to put people in boxes. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's comfortable for them to put everybody, compartmentalize everybody where they think they should be. And I think that's what drove people nuts, essentially, because they saw they couldn't do that. Mm. They were trying to put me in a category over here. I'm like, you know how many boxes, if that's the case, you know, I would fill a whole crate full of stuff. Right. Because it's not an either or, folks. It's an and. It's a both and. I can be all of these things at one time. And I think folks are slowly starting to to see that. And I appreciate that. Well, I know you're recruiting. Yes, um, ma'am. So what would you tell young women who are interested in law enforcement? What advice would you give them? What could you share? Do it. Do it. And prepare yourself. Um, you know, again, I wasn't like this buff whatever the, the the picture is you think of of a cop and what they should be when I first got started. But I remember saying, I don't want them to have any reason for me to call me out, call my name in the academy, because it is like a boot camp. I ain't want any reason. So I started doing push-ups before the academy started. I would start off with one, and then I'll go up to 10, and then, right, making sure that I was physically fit, um, you know, that my mind was sharp, just prepare. And whether it's law enforcement or anything, of course, I want you to come my way. But, you know, what do we say? Stay ready so we don't have to get ready. Right. And so when somebody taps your shoulder, because these jobs or whatever it is, to, for me, it, it's they've come at times when I wasn't expecting it. And because my shoulder was tapped or someone picked up a phone and called me, I wasn't intimidated in any way by what it was because I was already preparing for whatever that greater was that was coming. I didn't know what it was, but I was already preparing myself. So be a student of whatever it is that you want to do. If it's law enforcement, you don't necessarily have to go to school for criminal justice or administrative um, administration of justice. But know what's going on in the world as it relates to law enforcement, politics. We know that any incident anywhere in the world or the country, even if it happened here or not, it's going to have a ripple effect here because mm-hmm. we've already seen that, right? So what's the impact on law enforcement in our communities? How's our social environment, our technological environment, our political environment impacting what law enforcement does? Does that change the way we move, how we make decisions, policies, so on and so forth? Be a student of the field that you want to go in, hopefully, law enforcement. And then I would say be intentional, Right. I'm very intentional when I speak with anything decision that I make um, and be unapologetic about it. Go in there like, you know what? And if you messed up, walk out of there like, yeah, I messed up, you know, and but do it gracefully and learn to take a no. That's one thing that I think mm-hmm. we trip ourselves up in that in that area. Um, you know, if if you get turned down right away, don't walk away with your, t- you, you know, your tail in between your leg and think the world is is over. Sit back. Have your moment, reflect and be like, OK, what do I need to do to get make sure I get to where I want to be? Because I know this is for me and something that I want. Learn to take a no gracefully. Commissioner Outlaw, it has been a pleasure getting to know the woman behind the badge. Thank, Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly. As the chair of City Council's Committee on Parks, Recreation and Cultural Affairs, her goal has been to make neighborhoods safer. Many believe she's continuing to do just that. Shara Day Howard chats with 8th District Councilwoman Cindy Bass. 
As Women's History Month nears its end, we're celebrating women in our region who are making names for themselves in male-dominated professions. Women like Council Member Cindy Bass, who represents Philadelphia's 8th District. And she carries two mantles, one as a woman and the other as a woman of color. Council Member Bass, welcome to Bridging Philly. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, you've built with your own two hands a reputation in your district for being a boots-on-the-ground community advocate. Can you tell us why that's so important to you? Well, it's so important to me because it's like you have to build community to get anything done. No one of us, as any elected official, can do everything by themselves. And so, and I'm talking about from the president of the United States on down to a local committee person. You have, you really have to build coalitions to be able to get things done and be effective. And so it makes perfect sense to me that I have this great platform, this great opportunity as a member of Philadelphia City Council. Use that opportunity and that platform to help get people together, help them get organized, help them get the resources that the city can provide and that they can, can can get to help them do the job that we're asking them to do in the neighborhood. You know, I think that's the best way to work is when we work together. So what you're modeling here is personal investment, and you say that is what makes all the difference. You know, if you have folks who aren't vested in the work, it you know, it just never really comes together, I think, in the way that it should. When you gather community people who are vested, who care about a neighborhood cleanup, when they see someone throw trash down, they're going to say, hey, we just clean that up. Pick that up. Don't throw trash there. I just did that. And that's the way we have to continue to work to build neighborhoods. So how did you decide that politics was the road to take? How did you get here? Well, I got here. I don't I don't necessarily know that when I started on this road that I knew that this was the destination. I'll just say that, you know, I grew up in North Philadelphia. Uh, I grew up, uh, you know, uh, my mom raised myself and my sister at 17th and Lehigh and at 28th and Allegheny. And, you know, we were, um, uh, our little trio, we were really tight. Uh, my mom always instilled in me the importance of voting, of participating in the community activities, of, um, uh, you know, just being a part of the fabric of the community, of volunteering. You know, I, I began volunteering and, and just being a part of the neighborhood at a very early age. I was a candy striper. Um, you know, I was a Girl Scout. I was, you know, just involved in so many different activities in my neighborhood. And um, that morphed into volunteering for political campaigns along the way as I volunteered for civic associations. And then I got into political campaigns. And um, I remember uh, Allison Schwartz. Uh, who was running, who was then a state senator running for U.S. Senate, uh, reached out to me, tapped me, and asked me to come work with her. I had a background in banking and finance, and I left that behind. You know, I never looked back. I really enjoyed working in campaigns and working for constituents. And look, I would have done it for free. Really, as a community activist, a lot of times you do do it for free. So I was just honored to be able to be uh, in a position where I could actually, you know, earn a living, <laughs> earn a living doing it, and at the same time serve. From there, uh, you know, uh, my congressman noticed the work I was doing for the senator and offered me a position. And from there, I decided when there was a vacancy in the uh, city council seat with a retiring incumbent, well, why not me? And so I just threw my name in the ring and let's see what happens. And so it worked out. Uh, I was successful and I won. Have been serving ever since. And I, you know, listen, I love what I do. This job is a labor of love. You can't do this if you don't love it because it's incredibly hard as well. But if you love it, then you know what? You get knocked down one day. You can get up the next day because it's something that you love to do. You said, why not me? 
right? Why not you? A lot of people would say you're a woman and you're a black woman. That's why. But that never stopped you. You know, it's very interesting. So the first thing I'll say is that my inspiration has always been and always will be my mother, who with an eighth grade education was able to take nothing and turn it into something wherever you look. I mean, she was just amazing. And so, uh, you know, when I say why not me, I say that. Uh, on behalf of all of our mothers and all of our neighborhoods who really do make something out of nothing and who know how to uh, get us from point A to point B and do it on it. And, and, and they, listen, and they don't look for awards or, you know, recognition. They just do what they need to do to make sure that, that our homes, our communities, our kids, that we're functioning as we need to be in spite of. Exactly. Kitchen sink soup. Absolutely. And so, you know, this has been a, an interesting journey because, you know, um, along the way, people assume, listen, when I decided to have a baby and I was pregnant with my daughter, who was speculating as to whether I was going to be a candidate or not. Somebody said to me, actually, another woman said to me, you know, like, what are you going to do with that baby? You know, like, how are you going to run? You got a baby. And just the way she said baby, it was like with such disdain, like, is it a baby or is it a lizard? I, you, know, <laughs> you know, it was just not really the way I felt, obviously, about my child or about any child. And that uh, any mother who wants to have a child and work can do so. I just couldn't even believe that it was a topic of conversation that now that I was planning on being a mother that somehow it disqualified me. I thought it made me even more qualified. And especially now, 12 years in, you know, I have a level of experience as a mother that I wouldn't have had, that I really thank God for, that I, that I chose this road, that I have all of these experiences to borrow from to make really good public policy and sound decisions, especially uh, when it comes in that realm. So one man in particular, I'll just say, said to me and a good friend of mine, he said, you know, to, and, and we were at a reception and he said, you know, you're the smartest legislator in Philadelphia. He said to the, to the male and to me, he said, and you're the nicest looking <laughs> or something like that. Wow. And I said, yeah. I said, well, what? I said, well, why can't he be nice looking and I be the smartest one? Like, I'm smart, you know, like, you know, I can get things done. But I think that the narrative, old school, new school, whatever school of thought, has to be, you know, listen, women are here. We're making things happen. We're no longer in the background. We're in the forefront. And things happen with us. Things happen. It's a good thing. And this speaks to your earlier point about personal investment. Who's more invested than a mother who lives in the community who's from the community? Double standards shouldn't apply here. Oh, absolutely. Listen, you can't buy that experience. I don't care what anybody says. You know, there's a, there, there's something about um, having the, you know, very special, uh, unique and personal uh, opportunity uh, and blessing to uh, have the opportunity to be a mom and um, to be a mom and to provide service and to hear, you know, from this little one that you gave birth to. You know, my daughter is a student and at, at a, a local public school and on her first day at this public school, she says to me, Mom, you know, I saw some raw sewage backing up in the schoolyard. What are you going to do about that? Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like, you know, she's a constituent too. She wants her services too. And it's like, all right, let me get right on that. Let me let me see what I need to do. She gets it. And I'm, I'm grateful that I've been able to provide an opportunity to see how important service is firsthand, you know, up close and personal. So if she so chooses a life of service, I think that she would be well-equipped. Yes. So let's be real here. Let's talk about the double standard. The level of expectation. Listen, Black women are doers. 
we've always been behind the scenes doing, working, making it happen, whether it was a male who was Caucasian or a male who was African-American or, you know, of any other hue. But I think for a very long time, the background players were always women you know, behind the scenes that were doing all of the work behind the progress that got done. And I think that people will call out a Cindy Bass before they'll call out their male elected leadership in the same positions or in higher authority and positions. It feels unfair, but it's okay because I also try to keep in mind that people have come to rely on black women to get the job done. And I don't intend to disappoint. So let's talk about being called out. Right now, Philadelphia is seeing all-time high in both crime and gun violence. And I can imagine there's been no shortage of being called out. How have you dealt with that considering what you want this future to look like for the city? You have to get through every day, one day at a time. And I thought that was due... Uh, true before the pandemic. It is especially true right now. And every day I I have a prayer that I wake up to on my Alexa and, you know, I programmed it into waking up every morning and it says, God, please let my day be useful, my night be restful, my work be fruitful, that I'm the person that you would have me to be representing your people. And so I pray that prayer because these are the things that are important. I, you know, I, I want to be at peace. I want to be useful and I want to provide options for my constituents in terms of the resources that I bring to the table for them. You know, the pandemic, um, the level of violence, people are on edge. I get it. On any given day, people are really trying really, really hard right now, especially just to hold it together. So I try to say a kind word. I try to be graceful, uh, gracious. I try to not be quick to take offense if someone is angry with me or yelling at me, even though I'm human too and I have feelings too and emotions. Sometimes people just want to be heard. Sometimes they just need to get it out. I'll try to reason, talk them through how they're feeling, let them know that they've been heard and really just be a listener at the end of the day. And a prime example of your boots on the ground, hands on method. Every week you have rallies addressing gun violence and street violence. Tell us more. Well, you know, one of the things that our office does is every Tuesday we go out, uh, some of my staff usually, um, you know, it's sponsored by my office, but uh, once in a while I'm able to go, but usually my staff, but we sponsor a walk every Tuesday uh, during the day uh, in the Chew and Shelton area, which is a very well-known hotspot for drugs, illegal activity, uh, gun violence, um, because we still want people to know that we're still in the neighborhood. And I'm looking forward to the spring coming up because I know the 14th District Advisory Council, now they do their uh, marches in the evening, uh, uh, monthly. And I, I really look forward to being able to join them uh, and to get out and to talk to people and hand out literature and let them know that we're here for you. And if you see something, say something and get involved, be engaged, all those kinds of things. These are all things that are really important to me. Okay, so speaking of what you would like the future to look like, what you want your legacy to be, you've had to forge a way for yourself. You've had to carve out your own path. What would you like your legacy to be? I want that legacy to be, at the end of the day, that I came to serve and I help people. And that's really what this job is all about. Is this self-serving? Is this some sort of grandiose political ambition thing? You know, I think that that's what we have to look at when we elect leaders 
because if that's what it turns out to be, it's been a disservice and a waste of time and resources for all of us. There is such an incredible amount of need. And anyone who takes one of these jobs, like I said, it's got to be a labor of love because it's tough. At the end of the day, have we helped people? You know, it's that ultimate question that they ask every four years during a presidential election. What we should be asking during every election, is life better? We should be asking ourselves as elected leaders, did I make life better for the people that I represent? And if so, how? And, and what can I do better? And what new things do I want to bring to the table and try to get done? What does the future look like? What does the future look like? And to the community, you say you've got their back. All day, every day. Council member Cindy Bass, thank you so much for joining us here at Bridging Philly. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Deborah Advanced Behavioral Health. K1W's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. Their name is Nairobi Cologne, but they're better known as Teacher Roby. They're an influencer and art teacher in Camden, New Jersey, and they're bridging communities by teaching not only students and young people about representation of the non-binary community, but they're also educating society as a whole through their social media platforms. Nairobi Cologne is an art teacher at Kip Whittier Middle School in Camden. One day I woke up and I was kind of tired of being called Miss and knowing that that didn't sit right with me. That's when they asked students to refer to them as Teacher Roby with pronouns they, them. I want you all to call me Teacher Roby instead of Miss Roby. Are you okay with that? And they were like, yeah, what, what are we learning today? The Rutgers University grad says walking in their own truth and authenticity has also empowered their students. You know, being non-binary really opens the door to having an open classroom and having a safe space because of the fact that I'm able to be myself. And kids look at me and they're like, Teacher Obi is being themselves. I can be myself too. During the pandemic, Teacher Obi also started using their social media presence to further that community building. What started as a way of bonding with students blossomed into educating millions of people through representation. Teacher Obi's videos about life as a non-binary teacher has amassed them half a million followers. When people see me and see the content that I create, especially on social media, they can look to me to kind of get these answers that they're looking for. People look at me and kind of understand like, oh, okay, well, this person is actually a a cool person. Like people make this assumption in their minds. Oh, being non-binary means this. It is bad. It is not right. It is wrong. But the popularity has come with some protests. I do get backlash of like, you're mentally ill, you're mentally unstable. Their identity as an Afro-Latina and member of the LGBTQ community puts them at the intersection of two marginalized groups. Despite those challenges, Teacher Roby says they're persistent. At least 25% of our youth identify with a combination of pronouns that are outside of she, her. And so it keeps me going to know that I'm not the only one. It keeps me going to know that there are other people out there like me benefiting from my content. And 
youth need people like me. I needed somebody like me when I was growing up and I did not have that. And that is one of the main things that keeps me going. If you're interested in following Teacher Roby's journey, you can find them on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, all the platforms at Roby Got Souls. Their full story is also on our website. If you know a change maker we should highlight next, someone making a difference in your community, please let me know. You can find me on Twitter at A-R-L-E on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on air. And please subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shara Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>